it's okay to select easy books. We do it all the time. I don't look for a challenging book to read. I look for a book that I enjoy. So as teachers, we need to get over the fact that we need to challenge readers. No, we need to help them fall in love with books. That's the teacher's number one job. Help the child fall in love with books. The number two job is don't frustrate or humiliate your kids. Nothing makes a reader a non-reader like frustrating or humiliating your children. Welcome to Teaching Takeaways, Season 1, Episode 6. I'm your host, Amanda, and I'm glad you're here. This podcast series is about sharing favorite tools, strategies, and thoughts on all things education. If you have any connection to the education field and want to finesse your craft, this is a space to hang out and grab a piece of instant relevance, a takeaway you can apply to your classroom the very same day. Today I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Johnson about literacy instruction. If you're not connected on LinkedIn with Dr. Andrew Johnson, you really should be. He is a professor of literacy instruction at Minnesota State University, Mankato? That's correct. Perfect. His research includes learning instruction for struggling learners, dyslexia, response to intervention, and reading interventions. His posts on LinkedIn are instant relevance, um, pieces that speak to my educator soul on how to reach learners in our classrooms we might not know how to reach otherwise. Welcome to Teaching Takeaways, and thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to share some of your expertise with us. Glad to be here. Did I do all right with introducing you? Is there anything I missed? You bet. All right. So I'm not really even sure how we stumbled across each other on LinkedIn, but whenever the connection was made, what I really like about what you offer is you are all about the research. And what I notice in the classrooms is there's been like a pendulum swift or swing to more of the cute and we're leaving behind the research, like why we do things. And I like that you're taking the why so that we can grow our learners because we don't have much time with them, you know, about a thousand hours a school year. So thank you. Right. Well, the goal is to give teachers the tools that they can use to help them. That's what I am about. And I'm a nonprofit entity, and that seems like a silly thing. But when you don't have that as a motive, you don't say, hmm, how can I up my profile? Or how can I, you know, get more profits for whatever I'm doing. My my passion is to help teachers help learners because literacy is a social justice issue. If children are not fully literate, they're not fully accessed to our society. So what we do as a teachers is incredibly powerful. We can change the world one kid at a time. And so that's where my passion comes from. As far as research-based you know, we're always looking for the next, and I stop me if I go off on a tangent here, but I'm writing about this. We're always looking for the next magical strategy, you know, the ma- next magical program. And there is no one size fits all program. There are no magical programs. There's only magical teachers who have teacher toolbox filled with strategies. 
strategies that they are empowered to use, that they can make the choices about what is best for their teachers. Too often, teachers are assigned a method to use with fidelity. That means follow directions, don't ask any questions, just shut up and do it. And that's educational malpractice, if you ask me, because teachers know their students, should be able to make the decisions that are best for their students. So that was off on a tangent a little bit, but that's no, kind of where I I'm coming love from. it. I think that is awesome. I like your why, um, because I do know that, especially after teaching at the university this past semester, all of my teacher candidates, they just wanted, they're like, Professor Holman, just tell me what to do. And, you know, it's really hard to, to kind of get them to know that they have the tools, right? They are, they've been equipped, they've had the classes, they're graduating. And so they just need to meet their students and then see what reaches that kiddo or what, you know, and explaining to them that you don't pull out your August binder and every August, this is what we're going to do to make the growth happen. But each kiddo and each class has its own unique challenges and celebrations. And so, you know, just kind of filtering through that information and then also trying to find good information, which is what I really like about your post is, you know, you can go, you can Google lessons, but that doesn't mean it's a good lesson. You can Google strategies. It doesn't mean it's a good one. You need to know kind of the why. So with my teacher candidates, I would tell them, well, if you were going to go have surgery, would you want your surgeon to Google up how they're going to, you know, fix you? Or do you want them to, you know, have the evidence-based procedures to go in and fix you correctly the first time? And so... Um, or would you want your surgeon to operate with fidelity? You'd want your surgeon to be able to make choices based on what he or she saw. Right. So, no, and I do think that's you're a hidden gem out there. And this is, like I mentioned previously, this is my passion project as well. Just another median to help teachers because I don't know if it's, this is public on LinkedIn, but I have an eight-year-old and a two-year-old. So I'm also an educational stakeholder. I've got littles in the system that, you know, need to become grown-ups and literate grown-ups. Um, and so it's important to me that we kind of make sure that we have good education across the board. The principles for why we immerse students in meaningful literacy experiences, that's what carries with you, not a bunch of singular strategies, but understanding how the brain creates meaning with print and how we can best create the conditions whereby students can become literate. Now, are you teaching teacher candidates this semester? Or are I you just on research? Every semester I work with teacher candidates. Uh, undergraduates in person, and we have graduate online program. Uh, um, it's called a, a post-baccalaureate program. Awesome. So I sent you over some questions, and one of the questions I wanted you to talk to our listeners about today is if you could share a strategy or tool with them to enhance their teaching craft just one switch in what they're doing to go back to take to their classroom what do you think that could be and, and how could they go about using it it depends upon the age but immersing children in books is probably the best research-based strategy voluntary free reading where students are able to choose the books that they could enjoy if every kid spent a minimum of 15 minutes a day 
minimum, we would see the most growth and improvement. Now, this would be free voluntary reading at their independent level or below books that they choose. Voluntary reading has been linked to improvements in comprehension, vocabulary, word identification, conceptual knowledge, all that stuff. That is the strongest one. Now, if I'm working with struggling readers, I like to use language experience activities where they describe an experience, they dictate, you write what they say on the board or a screen, minimum of five sentences, you reread until fluency is achieved, and you use analytic phonics lessons within that context. Where's a word that has a ch, -ch ending? Find the word with the buck buck beginning. Those are the two strategies. But free voluntary reading, the research is just overwhelming that that is magic, that it has the most impact on students. And it's so funny that you say that because in one of my earlier podcasts and another one I'm working on for a couple weeks out is all about student choice. I uh, work independently with families and do supplemental teaching where they're missing gaps in their large district um, instruction. And so I meet with these families either online or face-to-face -face once a week. And we, you know, we've done a switch. We, I just have read so much on choice and it makes sense. And I'm actually presenting on that as well pretty soon. But, you know, Netflix, the reason why they are so successful is because they do offer choice. Whereas, and I found that as an interesting, you know, comparison, but when you have choice, you're, there's interest. And when we go to Barnes and Noble or we go to Amazon, we're, looking for what piques our interest. We're not, you know, hovering in one particular, you know, this is my reading level, so I can only shop from these, you know, two shelves at the bookstore or can on this. Can you imagine going to Barnes & Noble and they assigned you a book to read? Exactly, exactly. And that's and, what we do to our kids. And and it's so crazy because I'm in a, in a heavy debate right now with a classroom teacher for one of the students I work with, and we have seen substantial growth when we just spent one whole session book shopping online, right? Just looking at covers and reading, you know, story descriptions. And we found a bunch and I'm on Twitter and I posted a picture the other day that I'm the book dealer. And so I went to my library and I checked them all out and dropped them off on his front porch for him. And his mom emailed me the nicest note today saying that she has never seen him so excited about opening a book and doing his nightly reading homework because it and wasn't a thing about it. It's okay to select easy books. We do it all the time. I don't look for a challenging book to read. I look for a book that I enjoy. So as teachers, we need to get over the fact that we do to challenge readers. No, we need to help them fall in love with books. That's the teacher's number one job help the child fall in love with books. The number two job is don't frustrate or humiliate your kids. Nothing makes a reader a non-reader like frustrating or humiliating your children. And that's interesting that you say that because in one of my speeches that I do when I work with teachers is I tell them about my first grade experience. So I'm 38 years old and I'm a long time removed from the first grade, but I can tell you and being in Mrs. Welch's first grade class, I was in the elephant reading group and I couldn't read. I was a, a later reader and it still bothers me all these years later, just being in the elephant group and 
you know, having to call out letters and not get to have told any kind of book, you know, for most of first grade. So, you know, asking teachers, one of the questions I leave them with is, what is your teaching legacy going to be? What are your students going to remember about you and your literacy instruction? You know, are they going to be the elephants or are they going to be, you know, the ones that fall in love with books or, or writing or whatever? So I couldn't agree more with that. Um, so if we're looking, if you could turn back time, now did you ever teach in a classroom or just at the university level? Nope. I was a first and second grade teacher. I taught LD in a fifth grade classroom, so I've been around the block. That's awesome. I currently uh, tutor adults with intellectual disabilities. I've worked in the special ed classrooms, and I'm doing research with struggling readers in fourth grade right now. So I try to immerse myself. It informs my teaching practice. And I like that. I like that you have the theory, but you also have the practicum so that you're never one side or the other, because I think you need both sides to make it, you know, work. Um, but if you could turn back the time and talk to your newer teacher self, what would you tell him? <laughs> I talk to my newer teacher self all the time. I tell them I wish I would have had me as an instructor. <laughs> uh, two things. Relationship is the most important thing. Uh, until you form a relationship with your students, you're just a dancing monkey. Uh, so that's what probably is most important that you relate to your kids. If you relate to your kids, if you care about your kids, then you're going to make sure you are prepared and you know what the heck you're doing. The other thing I would tell my teaching self, well, to, the second thing is to help children fall in love with books to get rid of the basal. You don't need a basal. You need lots of good books that children can learn, uh, can enjoy reading. Uh, Good books cost a lot less money than basils and workbooks. Uh, so I'm a big proponent in having good books. And the third thing is understanding how the brain creates meaning with print. Reading is not sounding out words. Reading is creating meaning with print. And there are three cueing systems the brain uses to recognize words, the phonological, the semantic and the syntactic. And we tend to focus on only one of the cueing systems, the phonological cueing system, to the detriment of the other two. And if a kid has trouble with the phonological cueing system, instead of dealing with the other two, we focus just on what they can't do. So they can't do it even more. We need to develop simultaneously all three of the brain's cueing systems. I love that. That was a little more than you asked for, but you pressed my button and I just no. started speaking like a, uh, like a monkey here. It's good. And one of my earlier podcasts was on intervention. So I really liked your areas of interest because I think that's kind of, I also think it's part of the university system. I think at least where I have worked, we're, we're not giving teacher candidates enough tools when it comes to learning disability if you're just if you're not a dual major then you don't have enough classes i feel like to go into the classroom and be equipped and then it's impossible to create a finished teaching product in four semesters of any teacher preparation program we can create the basis from which to learn which points to the importance of continued professional development
Once you're in the classroom, then you can put context to some of these things. So if I were the grand poobah, everyone would start their teaching preparation with a year of being a, an assistant or a paraprofessional. Then they would take classrooms. They would go t- uh, classes. They go teach for another couple of years and take more classes. You cannot learn in the abstract. You cannot learn in four semesters how to be a teacher. Being a master teacher is much more complex than that. Absolutely. And then trying to, I was the principal of the year here in North Carolina. He was talking about, he's a high school educator, and he allows his teachers personalized PD. So he doesn't do whole staff professional development because, you know, the PE teacher needs a different skill set than your math teacher or your um, ELA teacher. And so he allows them to choose their own professional development, Mm -hmm. which I think is really cool. But then the question is, is how do you know that they're taking those nuggets of wisdom and applying them to their classroom? Well, of course, uh, action research projects are one of the best ways to do it, and I've written on that. But you want them to apply the research to their classroom. So it's probably more complex than you want to get into here. But there are ways that you could personalize teacher professional development. The key is they must be applying research or research-based strategies, trying them out and seeing how they work. Now, what is research and scientifically based research and a research-based strategy? That's a, a, a topic for a whole nother podcast. But there is not unified thinking in the research community as to what is research-based evidence. We cannot allow the U.S. Department of Education to define what uh, the gold standard is or what research is because they have a very narrow view of that. Awesome. Well, I think that you are a hidden gem out there and I enjoy all of your posts and I have them bookmarked, you know, so when I do eventually go back to the classroom and work with the littles again, maybe sooner than later, I have another, you know, tool set to reference. And I like that your videos and you explain things and I, to me, it's just another way of having that instant relevance. Like, okay, Bobby is on the struggle bus for fluency. So you have some great posts on fluency as well. And it's not just let me go to reading A to Z and figure out what, you know, worksheet I can print off that Bobby can read because I do like the authentic literature holding it in their hands. And then I feel like there's a buy-in for your students because, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're seeing as readers when they get to hold books instead of papers. And I think they want to work harder for you as well. Mm -hmm. You bet. All right. Well, we are to the part of the rapid fire questions and these are fun for me and you have not been prepped on those. So if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Uh, Let children read. The importance of free voluntary reading is so important. Now, I do want to ask you before I continue the questions, why do you, why is it do you think that there has been that shift that you go into classrooms and you hear more grown-ups talking and less 
kids talking or even just having, I remember growing up and we had deer time every single day. And even Mm -hmm. my teacher, it wasn't a chance for her to read. I mean, it wasn't a chance for her to grade papers. She actually sat in her rocking chair with whatever book was suiting her horn at that time that was school appropriate and was reading just like us. And, you know, that was one of those memories that stuck with me that I do at my house every day. My two-year-old gets out a book. My daughter gets out a book. I'm reading. My husband's reading. Um, just because I think that's important, but why do you think we're not doing that so much anymore? I think we've fallen in love with all the stinking tests, and we think the stinking tests mean something. You know, we get a bump in scores, and we think that's equated with better reading or the ability to create meaning with print. Standardized test scores are not predictive of anything else than the ability to do equally well on another standardized test. But we buy into the educational industrial complex who's out there to make money off our students. We buy into this testing madness, which has absolutely ruined education. I know it's hard to believe, but when I was a first grader back in 1963, there were no standardized tests. And yet somehow, somehow we managed to learn how to read. How is that possible? I agree. All right. And then my second rapid fire question is, what are you curious about right now? I'm like curious about, (laughs) you know, I get up every day and I spend the first half hour reading stuff. And right now I'm reading about feminist pedagogy and just how we come to know and who gets to decide what's knowing. You know, it's different than uh, controlled experimental research and in controlling all the variables. So is something you have failed at and how did you recover (laughs) if you have not failed you have not tried enough things uh i my first attempts at being a sixth grade teacher i went from first grade to sixth grade and thought i could apply the same ways of thinking and i failed miserably and it was a very good life lesson for me but if you've never failed you have not tried enough things I like that. Never failed. You haven't tried enough things. That's a good one. All right. And what is your favorite way to spend time outside of education? Uh, Riding my bike. Awesome. Now, are you in a bike-friendly community in Minnesota? Uh, We have some wonderful trails here in Mankato. Uh, I'm very appreciative of it. Nice countryside. It's a small city, so I can get outside uh, outside of traffic within two minutes or so. Awesome. I, I know traffic, that's the scary part. Like riding the bike is the easy part. It's what are people doing right. in their cars while you're riding the bike? We have enough bike trails here, so it's, it's easy to do. Awesome. And then lastly, is there anything I should have asked, but skipped over? I didn't. I don't think so. You know, I'm a big proponent of voluntary reading. If I haven't hit that on the head hard enough, <laughs> Uh, but helping our children fall in love with books, number one job. After that, 98% of teaching is done. We don't teach reading as much as we create the conditions whereby children can learn to read. And here's the thing. Struggling readers already know how to read. They know that you put letters together and you make sounds. They know how to do that. They're just not very good at it. So we need lots of reading practice with a little instruction along the way. I can play the piano. I just can't play very well. I need lots of practice and a little instruction. So same way with learning to read. 
more, we should call it reading practice instead of reading class. Let's go to reading practice today, boys and girls. Oh, that is catchy. I like that. All right. Well, I thank you so much for you donating some of your time today. And if you don't mind, maybe in another like couple of months, I'll reach back out and see if we can talk about another one of your strategies, if you will, or just kind of do a check-in. Not a problem. Happy to do it. Glad you're doing what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I hope you have a fabulous rest of your day. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. If you like what you've just heard, please leave me a review on your podcast platform. Reviews help make the podcast more visible for new listeners to find us. If there is a topic you would like more information on, direct message me on Twitter at Amanda Hallman, on Instagram at Teaching Takeaways, or by email teachingtakeaways at gmail.com. Thanks for hanging with me for a piece of instant relevance, a teaching takeaway to use in your classroom the very same day. See you next Tuesday for a new teaching takeaway.